uh, we're going to begin our time with the reading of the text together. As we read, I want you guys to do something. I want you guys to pay careful attention to the grace-enabled actions of four people. Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. I want you to pay attention to these four as they're driven by the word to make disciples. So please follow along with me in Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18, (laughs) on September the 18th. We're making a joke of that. Uh, But Acts 18, starting in verse 18, as we begin our time with the reading of God's word. 18 begins and says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Cancreae, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he, he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed, and from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began speaking boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Please join with me in prayer. Dear God, We come before you this morning again confessing that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can stand before you today. And we thank you for passages like the psalm we just read that reminds us that you are near and that you hear us when we pray to you. Teach us to, as the scripture said, hold fast to you in love that we'll find protection and deliverance from the fears that we struggle with. And teach us again this morning that you are the most high, our refuge, our mighty fortress in which we must place our trust. We pray for those who have not yet placed their trust in you, for those who have not yet felt the comfort of your presence and salvation that only comes through Jesus. As we regularly do, we we pray for our children here this morning, those that you have blessed us with. We pray 
that they would come to know Jesus at a young age and that you would spare them from seasons of rebellion. Please grow in them a desire to know you. We pray for all those who are serving all over campus. May may you bring them fresh joy in their service this morning. And for the hurting and the weak, may your peace, may your strength abound. We pray for those battling sickness and those recovering. We pray that they find comfort that only comes through knowing you more and more. Deeper and deeper, day by day. And pray for all those family members and medical staff who are caring for them. May you be their strength. May you be their source of rest. Guide them in times of frustration, times when they feel defeated by the weight of tomorrow and bring them also fresh joy today and strength that only comes from you. We pray for the handful of students, middle schoolers, that that join us from week to week. May you carry them through the struggles that they face in school, on the weekends, day to day. May you continually draw them to know your grace. We pray for all those who are married, those who are struggling in their marriages, those uh, young families as well. Lord, we pray that you grant them wisdom. Lord, I pray that you reveal to them their sin and guide them in your grace, restore their joy. We pray for our young singles and our college students. May you sustain them through during, during these stressful times and delight them in knowing your nearness. And Lord, for those who are new visiting with us here, we pray that you guide them to experience the immeasurable joy of salvation this morning. We pray that you guide us as we study your word this morning in the power of Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. If this is your first time joining us, again, welcome. We have been journeying through uh, the book of Acts in this series called Becoming His Church. And as I like to remind us, we we started this series back in January. We've been journeying chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we've been witnessing Luke's record of the birth and the development of his church, of God's church. I think it's always important that we state what our goal is in this series. Our goal in this series is to become his church through the study of his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. How do we get there? God's worth is the fuel that drives us to this goal. And obedience to the Great Commission, God's holy mandate, is the vehicle in which we get there. After Jesus resurrected from the dead, he gave his followers this great commission, and it's going to be on the screen. Matthew 28, the middle of 18, it says, Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in these past nine months, we have seen and witnessed time and time again several examples of God's people obedient to this instruction. 
In fact, the passage that we just read, the passage for this morning, not only shows us the importance of word-driven disciple-making, but it also demonstrates it for us in the example of Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, and Apollos. Let's talk about us today. We live in a time where many people miss, many people miss the mission of the church, of his church. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm glad you're here. We're going to talk about this a little bit. You, you might have witnessed several poor examples of church-going Christians. You might even be thinking of specific people right now. To you, it might seem that Christians tend to have a country club mentality when it comes to their faith. They gather for their club meetings. They speak the club lingo. They sing the club songs. They regularly pay the club duties and fees. They have their assigned seating in the club hall. And some even from time to time volunteer to serve in the club's special fundraising events. Others tend to view the church not so much as a country club, but more of a business. Maybe you've heard of this before. The church is thus seen as a nonprofit legal entity with a CEO and a board of directors that make all the decisions for the longevity of the company, overseeing financial stability through an ongoing donor base. Its aims are to provide the best service, the absolute best product, And of course, the best entertainment to maintain the right customer base. And I know some of you guys are smiling (laughs) because you, you know that this is true. The sad reality is many Christians in the modern church today also see the church this way. They can't shake the country club mentality. They give in to the temptations of reevaluating and assessing the church as a business. Many people think that our Christianity only consists of coming to a building on one morning a week, participating in the life of the church, giving regularly, but they still miss the mission of the church. Why? Because they neglect to be discipled and they neglect to make disciples. In his book, Born to Reproduce, Dawson Trotman comments about this tendency the local church has in missing its mark, in missing its goal. He writes this, the curse of today is that we are too busy. I'm not talking about busy earning money or food or money to buy food. I am talking about being busy doing Christian things. He writes this, he says, we have Spiritual activity with little productivity. The gospel spreads in the known world during the first century without radio, television, or the printing press because the writings of the apostles produced men who were reproducing disciples. But today, today, he writes this, we have a lot of pew sitters. People think that if they are faithful in church attendance, put good-sized gifts into the offering plate and get people to come, 
that they have done their part. You know, the eerie thing about this comment that Trotman makes is that it was written 67 years ago today. And yet we are still seeing this downward trend of the church's understanding that making disciples is our mission. Our obedience to the Great Commission should be one of the most accurate ways we can assess a church's health. I'm going to kind of throw this out there as a challenge. Perhaps instead of asking if we're meeting our membership quota, like a country club, and instead of asking how much money we're secured for the next year's quota, maybe to assess our church, we should be asking, how have we lived out the Great Commission this past year? How have we been living out the Great Commission this past month? Maybe this past week? This section in chapter 18 picks up where we left off last week. And it tells us how Paul concludes his second missionary journey and then begins his third. In the beginning of Acts chapter 18, we see that Paul adds to his extensive travel log as he traveled from Athens to Corinth. In just a short three-year period from 49 to 52, he traveled close to 2,000 miles on foot and nearly 1,000 miles by boat. This man, who was nearly 55 years old, ministered on foot, the equivalent of walking across the U.S. from Maddie's hometown in Fresno, California, all the way to Louisville, Kentucky, on foot, just so he could tell people the good news of the gospel. I think I pronounced Louisville right. right. I got a thumbs up. Okay. Um, For those of you who are unfamiliar with the geography of the mainland, uh, it's like walking walking on Oahu from Makapu Point to Ka'ena Point about 44 and a half times. And then about five trips on a non-motorized boat back and forth from Oahu to the Big Island. Not only did he preach the gospel with determination and zeal, but we have also witnessed his great passion to disciple these new converts in order to grow their knowledge and their faith in Jesus Christ. Just look at verse 11 from last week. Look at verse 11. Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul yearned for and strived greatly to live in obedience to his great commission calling. So the title of the sermon this morning is Word-Driven Disciple-Making. And again, we'll be in Acts 18 through 28. I want to talk to you guys about my goal for this morning. For those of you who don't identify as a Christian, my hope for you this morning is twofold. Firstly, I hope that by the end of our time together this morning that you will have a greater understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And secondly, my other hope is that you will follow Jesus and that you will know him as your personal Lord and Savior today. Christians, my hope is that you will not only observe the examples of these faithful disciple makers in this passage, but that you yourself would examine your own disciple making practices. 
For this, I want to offer three elements that characterize word-driven disciple-making. And what I love about this passage is that we get to witness discipleship modeled in the actions of not just one, not just two, but four people in this short passage. So let's dive into this text one more time. My first point in the text this morning is that his church must prioritize, must prioritize ongoing fellowship that leads to follow-up. Prioritize ongoing fellowship that leads to follow-up. When we see this in verses 18 through 23, who do we look at? We look at Paul. Paul models this element of word-driven disciple-making. And he does this first through his commitment to be present with the Corinthian believers. Instead of ministering and moving on in his missionary agenda, Paul fellowships with them. And what does his fellowship do? It leads to more and more spiritual follow-up. This is kind of an important point. It might be good to write this down. Genuine fellowship, genuine fellowship should lead to spiritual follow-up. Genuine fellowship should lead to spiritual follow-up. You see, genuine fellowship goes beyond the modern church's feeble attempts at fellowship, sporting a fragile Sunday to Sunday, how, how was work this week, type of shallow relationship. And as Matt and I have stated several times before, genuine fellowship takes place when the time that Christians spend together reveals the spiritual state of each other's hearts. So this type of genuine fellowship, it goes beyond playing five-minute catch-up at the tail end of each Sunday morning worship service, trying to pick up where you left off last week. This goes beyond sharing a meal together, and this goes beyond an activity that you attended together. This goes beyond simple acts of serving together. Real, authentic, rich fellowship should lead to a deepened understanding of how you can be praying for your brother or sister in Christ. Genuine fellowship should lead to a deepened understanding of how you can intentionally serve another brother or sister in Christ. A deepened understanding of each other's struggles in sin and their grace-enabled victories should lead to a deepened understanding of God's grace in the blood of Christ. Again, genuine fellowship should lead to Spiritual follow-up. When I hear the phrase, fellowship that leads to follow-up, I often think of the 1980s TV hit MacGyver. I don't know if you guys ever watched that before, but I loved watching it with my dad growing up. And this guy MacGyver, he was an absolute legend at creating the most elaborate of things with the most mundane materials he had at his disposal. With his signature mullet, he once made a bazooka in a matter of seconds using a car muffler, a gear shift knob, a seat cushion, and a cigarette lighter. Imagine what our fellowship could look like if we had this kind of ingenuity. Brothers and sisters in Christ yearn for fellowship in such a way that you MacGyver opportunities that create moments of spiritual follow-up 
with other believers. This might mean that you might have to use the most random things around you, but even a basketball and a handful of pastries can get you to a deep gospel conversation. One of the greatest ways we can prioritize ongoing fellowship that leads to follow-up is to love your local church with a burning desire to see spiritual maturity. That's somewhat of a mouthful. It's going to be up on the screen. But again, one of the greatest ways we can do this first point that we can prioritize ongoing fellowship that leads to spiritual follow-up is to love your local church. How? With a burning desire to see spiritual maturity. Let's look at the text. How did Paul do this? Looking in at verse 18, Luke explained that Paul stayed many days longer before he took leave of them. This is the first time, this is very important, it's unique. This is the first time in his missionary journeys that Paul chooses to extend his stay in a city. It's believed that verse 18 explains that he stayed even longer than the original 18 months. What is he doing doing during his extended stay in Corinth? It's believed that he takes time to walk them through Scripture, discipling this new congregation in order that they will be grounded in God's word. Verse 18 also confirms that God's promise to protect Paul was fulfilled because unlike some of the other cities that he visited, he wasn't driven out of Corinth. Instead, he departed from these Corinthian believers when he felt that it was an appropriate time to say farewell. Paul modeled what it meant to have a burning desire to see spiritual maturity in these new converts. And it was contagious. In our next point, later on, we'll we'll direct our attention to the examples of Priscilla and Aquila and their burning desire to see spiritual maturity. But as we continue on in the text, one question remains. Why why are they going to Syria? Syria was the location of Paul's home church. This was the church that he was sent from, and it was commonly referred to as Syrian Antioch, where it all began in Acts 15. One of my mentors used to call this the first international church of Antioch. They were all about the mission all about the mission. At their port of departure, Luke indicates that this this detail that Paul had cut his hair. Some people believe he shaved his head uh, for he was under a vow. It's kind of confusing. Why did Paul get a haircut? (laughs) Why does Luke account for this? Um, It isn't clear why Paul had made a vow, but it seems like it's because of this vow that he cut his hair. Many scholars believe it was a type of vow that expressed his gratitude, his great thanks to God for protecting him while he was in Corinth. So Paul cuts his hair, and they make their way to Ephesus. And when they arrive in Ephesus, Paul followed his usual pattern, where he went first to the synagogue to proclaim Jesus, that he is the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies If you remember from a few weeks ago, we discussed how the Spirit had blocked Paul from ministering in Ephesus in chapter 16. So back in chapter 16, obedient to the Spirit's guidance, Paul rerouted 
all, and he ministered in Macedonia. And now, in the text, he's back at it in Ephesus. I agree with one pastor who writes this short thing. He says, this short passage helps us look forward to what will become his primary ministry that took place on his third missionary journey. But what seems so strange about this return trip to the port of Ephesus is that his ministry seems successful, yet very, very brief. In fact, the short time of ministry in the synagogue was so well received that they asked him to stay for a longer period. But Luke records in verse 20 that Paul declined. Why would Paul turn down an opportunity to share the gospel with hungry people? There are at least two possible reasons. There's an addition to the text that says that he wants to go uh, to a festival and he doesn't want to be late. That was an addition to the original text. Uh, But there are at least two other main reasons. First, Paul knew that God was directing him to be with his brothers and sisters at his home church in Antioch. And the safe window to actually travel this route back home only lasted a uh, handful of days. And so he he knew that his time in Ephesus was going to be short. And the second possible reason was he believed in God's sovereign will. He believed that it's God's sovereign will that gives him peace and discernment to leave this gospel opportunity in Ephesus and finish his journey back in Antioch. Just look again at verse 21. Paul responds to the request by saying, I will return to you if God wills. And then he sets sail for Ephesus. Paul's burning desire to see spiritual maturity is seen in the way that he wasn't a micromanaging minister. He wasn't afraid and unable to leave his place of ministry of influence. Paul didn't minister with a Messiah complex, harboring delusions of ministry, compelling him to believe that only he could save them, that only he could protect them, and only he was worthy enough to disciple them or to grow them in faith. No. Paul faithfully trusted the will of God and ministered to these people, understanding that he was entrusted to a faithful team to minister with. Paul's actions remind us yet again that he was not a lone ranger missionary, nor was he a rogue missionary for Christ. Paul's ministry was always associated with his participation with the local church. Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila to carry on the ministry there, and as one scholar points out, Paul did not leave the city without a Christian witness. Verse 22, Luke records that Paul went up Mount Zion to the Jerusalem church and then went down the mountain to his home church in Syrian Antioch. He visited these two churches undoubtedly to give a report summarizing all that God had done, everything that he witnessed, telling them all that God had accomplished on this second missionary journey. It seems that his burning desire to see spiritual maturity in all the churches he had witnessed to would not let him stay at his home church for much long. After spending some time there, the text says he departed and went from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, and pay careful attention to this. What was he doing when he made these return visits? 
Paul was, the text says, strengthening all the disciples as he went back to the believers we last saw on his first missionary journey from Acts 14, 15 on forward. I agree with John Polhill when he commented that Paul set a noble example of the importance of continued nurture for new converts. This was Paul's heart. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of prioritizing ongoing fellowship that leads to follow-up. This is the product of word-driven disciple-making. This is the characteristics of becoming his church. The second element of word-driven disciple-making is that his church must correct humbly with compassion and conviction. I did something there with a bunch of C's, huh? (laughs) Correct humbly with compassion and conviction. This is seen in verses 24 through 26. Priscilla and Aquila model the second element of word-driven disciple-making. You know, as a, as a sin-stained parent, I know what it's like to correct my children with the wrong heart. Where I'm correcting them without humility, without gentleness, without compassion, without the proper loving intentions and biblical convictions. And this is my connection point to you. If you are a leader in your workplace or if you have any level of authority in your office, in your ministry, in your classroom, in your dorm, or even in your home, you've most likely faced the difficulties of correcting others in a worshipful, God-honoring way. I think it's safe to say if you haven't been in this place yet, you will be. So to prepare for these moments, I want, to look, I want you to look with me at the example of Priscilla and Aquila. Before Luke moves on to Paul's next missionary journey, he explains what happens in Ephesus after Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind. In verse 24, Luke introduces a man by the name of Apollos, an important figure that we will now journey forward with in the early church narrative. Luke describes Apollos as a native of Alexandria. This means that he was North African. He was dark-skinned. Alexandria also tells us something. Alexandria was known as the intellectual center of its time, world famous for its library, So we can safely assume that Apollos was well-educated. We also know that the community in Alexandria was very, very smart. (laughs) They put together a Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Alexandria was also the home of famous philosophers like Philo and religious scholars like Athanasius, Clement, and Origen. Luke also explains that Apollos traveled to Ephesus to do ministry about the time that Paul left the region. Apollos is described as an eloquent man, competent in the Old Testament scriptures, and that he had instructed, or he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. The root of the Greek word translated as competent is where we get the English word for dynamite. Luke uses this word to explain that he was mighty 
that Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. Luke seems to imply that Apollos is a Christian when he states that Apollos is fervent in the spirit. For some reason, many reputable English translations leave out that definite article, the, before spirit. And this word the seems to indicate that Apollos' passion came from the Holy Spirit. You see, even for non-Christians, new believers, um, something to note is having the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside them. This is a promise that only Christians can receive and only Christians can enjoy. This is what enabled Apollos to speak and teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. This man had deep knowledge of God's word. He had eloquence and a passionate heart, but the text states that he was missing one key ingredient in his ministry. He knew only the baptism of John. And this statement is what causes a lot of debate. So let me debunk this a little bit and talk about it a little bit. It would seem that even though he was a Christian who understood the basic foundations of Christianity, he only knew, he seemed to only know how to explain the good news of Jesus using the teachings of John the Baptist, explaining that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised of the Old Testament. Now, in a sense, this could mean that he was unintentionally teaching a partial gospel because he wasn't teaching about the significance of Jesus' life, of Jesus' death, and his resurrection. And this, right here, this is where we see Priscilla and Aquila re-enter this narrative. Now, I want to remind you, earlier we noted how this special couple, like Paul, had a burning desire to see spiritual maturity in other believers. But I also want to remind you of some of the actions of Priscilla and Aquila that were introduced last week. This married couple is mentioned six times in the Bible. And every one of those times that they are mentioned, they are mentioned together. Not only that, they were mentioned together, ministering to others together. This couple was also mobile. They migrated from Pontus to Italy. They were forced out of Rome and ended up in Corinth where they met Paul. And here in verse 18, we see Priscilla and Aquila leave their business in Corinth in order to accompany Paul on this, mission, or on this journey to Ephesus. 1 Corinthians even notes that we will later see the church meet in Priscilla and Aquila's home. I love how one pastor puts it. He says, they didn't think of any spot on this world as their home. They remained open to the will of God. And while their vocation, their job, likely contributed to their mobility, it was ultimately their commitment to follow Jesus Christ that caused them to go from city to city proclaiming the gospel. This couple was remarkable. Perhaps as Paul was writing about the spirit-filled husband and wife in Ephesians 5, 18 through 33, he might have had Priscilla and Aquila in mind. In Romans 16, Paul compliments their Christ-centered passion, calling them co-workers in Jesus Christ who risked their own necks for him. This was no cheap compliment coming from Paul. He knew them. 
He traveled with them. He stayed with them. And as one pastor writes, he literally owed his life to these risk takers. Those of you who are married believers here this morning, do you see this in your marriage? Are you both hungry to see believers around you grow in their spiritual maturity? Enough that, do do you practice hospitality in such a way that leads to gospel conversations? That leads to prayerful follow-up with other believers? Young singles, I want to talk to you guys, especially our college students, young singles. Are you striving to find, are you praying for this type of gospel-centered marriage? Parents, hard love moment. Parents, do you see, do, do your kids see your heart for the lost? Parents, do your kids catch you and your spouse praying together at night for opportunities to share the gospel? Parents, do you disciple? Do you present the gospel to your unsaved child, yourself? Or do you just hope that someone else will do that for you and you can pick up where they left off? Students, Is your parents' heart for others to grow in their faith visible? Or do you have to squint to see it? Do your parents simply expect you to act like a Christian the moment you walk in those doors? Or do they uh, consistently and constantly teach you why your actions can never save you? Do your parents tell you about your need for Christ's Daily. Is that just an afterthought? Brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you have answered yes or no to any of these questions, I want to encourage you to follow the lead of this first century couple. This ordinary couple demonstrates what can happen with an ordinary marriage. when Christ becomes the extraordinary reason for their relationship, the foundation in which they do life. Verse 26 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila hear this man Apollos speaking boldly in the synagogue, but they recognize that in his proclaiming, he knew only of the baptism of John. I want you to look at the way they humbly correct Apollos with compassion and conviction. With great tact, they took him aside, perhaps into their home, and explained to him the rich fullness of the way to God more accurately. Notice that Luke uses the same word in verses 25 and in verse 26. They recognized that Apollos taught accurately for the heard him preach in the synagogues, but they explained to him how to more accurately teach the way of God. I love how one pastor explains their meek-minded hearts. Kent Hughes explains this. He says, Priscilla and Aquila recognized some deficiencies in Apollos' understanding, but they did not correct him in public. There was no scorn, no criticism, no rejection. They did not embarrass him. 
See, it's only God's grace that makes us like this. Also crucial to our understanding of word-driven disciple-making is how we receive faithful correction worshipfully. Even though Apollos was a polished preacher, eloquent and mighty, he humbly sat at the feet of these, this lowly tent maker and his wife. See, this is grace-enabled humility. This is the type of humility that leads to something even greater, as Matt pointed out during one of our meetings. It is pointing to Christ's humility. One pastor comments on this instructive action that Apollos was delivering. He says this, he says, Apollos probably had far more education than Aquila and Priscilla combined, but he maintained a teachable heart. He listened to their counsel and adopted their position. This is a great reminder that we should never think we are beyond the need for further instruction in God's word, no matter how long we've been Christians or how many degrees we hold. I want to exhort you, in order to correct humbly with compassion and conviction, you must, this is the next point, you must employ an open Bible and a worshipful tone. You must employ an open Bible and a worshipful tone. You see, in some cases, making disciples will resemble this narrative. Correcting a teacher might be rare, but more often than not, you will likely have chances to pull a brother or sister in Christ aside and just talk about doctrine. You might even have the privilege of discipling one-on-one a new believer or even one of the students here at this church where your careful instruction helps them grow in their understanding of the gospel message. Believer, never underestimate the importance of personal, word-driven disciple-making. As someone put it once, no one needs to stand behind a pulpit to teach. It's for this reason that, we correct other, that when we correct others, we must employ an open Bible and a worshipful tone. By doing so, our correction points us to our shortcomings and our joint need for Christ. Church family, if we desire to be his church, we must correct humbly and receive correction humbly, both with compassion and conviction. Third and final element of word-driven disciple-making that we see in this passage is that his church must make disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And I can go on and on and on. This is seen in verses 27 and 28. Apollos, the fourth person that we're going to be looking at, he models this final element of word-driven disciple-making. After being discipled by Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos desired to go to Achaia, more specifically to Corinth, the capital of Achaia. It's possible that Priscilla and Aquila fostered Apollos' interests to minister in Corinth as they shared about God's memorable work in that city where Paul recently had an extended period of fruit-bearing ministry. This must have excited him. He wanted to go there himself. You see this, Priscilla and Aquila, they discipled with Paul, 
which resulted in Apollos' discipleship, which now results in the discipleship of others with other disciples. Can't say disciples enough in that statement. We see discipleship that's reproducing over and over and over again in this passage. My final exhortation this morning is that in order to make disciples that make disciples, you must equip the saints scripturally. As we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning, who are the saints? Every believer is a saint. What I'm saying in this exhortation is we must equip every believer with scripture. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to again remind you that we have all been given a great commission. As one of my professors snarkily remarked, this is not the great option. Yeah, it's not the great option. This is a command from God for every Christian about how we are to live until our final breath or his return. We do not simply pray a prayer of salvation one Sunday, walk down an aisle, and then just sit on our hands for decades until our final breath. Nor do we waste our lives on pleasure like the Epicureans back in Acts 17 with pleasure. Believers, we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ that we may know him, enjoy him forever, and be transformed by him. So what? Why? Why are we transformed by him? So that we can be obedient to the command he has given each and every one of us. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want to remind you that you have been commanded by the supreme authority of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And it comes with a promise. It comes from a promise from Christ and his authority. And he says, as you go, behold, I am with you always to help you carry this out to the end of the age. Christian, this necessitates that you yourself must be equipped to equip others. Understand that it is impossible to follow this command without proper knowledge of the Bible. Look at Apollos. It wasn't his eloquence alone, his competency in the Old Testament alone, his teaching ability alone, his boldness alone, his knowledge alone. None of these things that helped anyone. It was only until he grew in his knowledge of Christ that he was able to explain more accurately the way of God, that he was able to greatly help other believers in Corinth, that he was able to use scriptures powerfully for the glory of God, and it was only until he grew in his knowledge of Christ that he was able to disciple others. Verse 27 tells us that the brothers in Ephesus encouraged him in this desire to minister in Corinth. They even wrote to the disciples in Corinth to welcome Apollos as a brother in Christ upon his arrival. Once Apollos arrives in Corinth, he's back at it again. He seems to follow the example of Paul as he goes to the Jewish synagogue to powerfully argue that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament scriptures. Why? 
to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Luke records that this greatly helped the other Christians in Corinth. Unlike the private correction that he received, he was guided by the Spirit to publicly refute the Jews. And this word refuted is a strong verb that is only used here in the New Testament. In a sense, it means to overwhelm an opponent through an argument. As one scholar writes, refute is an intensive compound word explaining that Apollos was so effective in his argument, in his discourse, that he crushed his opponents, totally disproving them at every point. Like a bomb that is detonated and unleashed, he made on the church in Corinth that in their eyes, Apollos is held to the same respect as Peter and Paul. Paul himself will later consider Apollos a fellow co-worker of God. And as one scholar writes, these ministers encourage each other in a task they know they share. They are aware that it is a task bigger than any one of them. It is for that reason that Paul directs all the glory to God, the mission giver, not the missionaries. I want to close with this final story real quick. There's an interesting story of one of the founders of Southern Seminary. Um, He wrote this. He wrote what I believe to be the hermeneutical linchpin of all good seminary education in his preaching book. Nine days before his passing, this man is lecturing his class and he paused to say, Gentlemen, if this were the last time I should ever be permitted to address you, I would feel amply repaid for consuming the whole hour hoping to impress upon you two things. He says this, pursuing holiness and like Apollos to be men mighty in the scriptures. I love this part. He then paused and stood for a moment with his piercing eyes fixed upon the class. Over and over he repeated in that slow but wonderfully impressive style that was distinctly his, saying this, mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. Church, if we want to make disciples that make disciples, we must equip every believer to be mighty in the scriptures. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to urge you to turn to Christ because only in him that you will find the assurance of your salvation. See, there were many things that were addressed this morning about making disciples, but for you, these things cannot be done until you yourself have first experienced the joy of personally knowing Christ. Again, my hopes that I stated in the very beginning of this, my hope, my goal is that you have a greater understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, your great need for Jesus, and that you know him today. My hope is that you've been able to witness why Christians are so determined to make Christ known. And it is because of our love for those like yourself who have not confronted your sin 
and experience the good news of the gospel that Jesus paid for the sins of all who believe in him. If you're not a Christian, turn to Christ. Trust him and experience the immeasurable joy of salvation this morning. Follow him and know him as your personal savior today. Christians, now that you had a chance to observe the examples of faithful disciple-making in this passage, I want to again have you examine your own disciple-making practices. Maybe for some of you, you have been a Christian for 5, 10, 15, 50 plus years, and you have yet to be obedient to make even one reproducing disciple. I want to ask you this morning, for those of you listening on the podcast, I'm smiling right now. (laughs) I want to ask you this morning, are you ready to start your training today? Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't miss the mission of the church. His church has been bought with the blood of Christ that we may know him, enjoy him, and proclaim him to the nations. God has given every believer a great commission calling to go and make disciples. Believers, in order to make disciples, you must prioritize ongoing fellowship that leads to follow-up. This necessitates that we follow the example and witness of Paul and his heart to continually follow up with new believers. And for that, again, we need to love your local church with a burning desire to see spiritual maturity. Secondly, in order to make world-driven disciples, you must correct humbly with compassion and conviction as you follow the example of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. You gotta employ an open Bible and a worshipful tone. And finally, church, you must make disciples that make disciples. Be encouraged by the example of Apollos that your word-driven discipleship will lead to the faithful discipleship of others. Therefore, equip every believer scripturally so that they may grow in the scriptures.